And then by the time you get over to verse 21, he goes on to tell more parables. And he doesn't explain those parables. And a lot of people are like, well, why doesn't he explain these? Why is he being so mysterious? Well, he's already said, I explained the parable of the seeds to you, and I told you that if you understand that, you'll understand everything else I say. Um, one, of the, one of the funniest things about Jesus is that we, we are, one of the things that humans do to him is overthink him. He, he really is not being very complicated sometimes. Sometimes he is saying it, and, it, and it's, he wants children to understand it. And, and it's so simple that <laughs> us and our high and mighty flesh just do not get what he's saying because it's too simple. So these next parables here, I, I want us, I, I have always been uh, somewhat mystified by them. And now doing that, it's because I missed this verse right here where he says, if you understand the seeds, you'll understand these parables. So this sermon today is about looking at the parable of the lamp and our hermeneutic, our, the way that we're going to understand it is the parable of the seeds. And as I go forward, all the parables that I explain, I'm going to be referencing the parable of the seeds because Jesus said himself, it's not complicated. If you get the one about the seeds, you're going to understand everything else that I say in a parable. So with that in mind, let's read the text. The text specifically today is verse 21 through 25. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That is the parable of the seeds again. It's exactly the same parable and a slightly different variation. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the seed that you never tire of casting into this world, of the light that shines and never grows dim. And we thank you, Father, that these are metaphors for your Son. There is no end to his grace. There is no end to his compassion. There is no end to the revelation that is possible in him. We can not only understand ourselves, our families, our world, and you better, I, I, we can understand it better than anything we can possibly imagine. We pray, Lord God, as we come to your son this morning, that he would fulfill his promise that he states in this parable and that he would, by the measure we use, measure out to us not only grace but understanding. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your Sabbath. And we pray, Lord God, that as we grow now, that we would um, be at rest in your son and that we would bear fruit unto eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, verse 21 there's a lot going on here uh, than it first appears. And some of it is actually artificial. Some of it is artificial. If, if you have an English Bible and you're looking at it, it says, is a lamp brought in to put under a basket? Now, here's the problem. The, it's not brought. That's not the word in Greek. It's come. Does a, does a lamp come? Now, why? Why would they do this? Uh, I actually went and looked at all of the translations of this section, and everybody says brought, uh, except for two translations. One uh, was made in 1901. Nobody uses it anymore. 
And the other one, some people use it, usually high church Anglicans. <laughs> but why does it say brought instead of come? Well, partially, and, and I mean, this, is, this takes us a little far afield, and I'm gonna, I like laying these little eggs here, and you guys get to go and see what hatches on your own time. But it's because this nonsense view of the synoptic gospels where everything originally comes from some manuscript that called the Q manuscript that we've lost. So all the other uh, gospels, synoptic gospels, say Bront, and so somebody must have written it down wrong, <laughs> and it really should be Bront and not come. That, that, that is actually some people's explanation. Well, there is no such thing as this weird document called Q. Uh, Mark was the first gospel written, and he chose the word come on purpose. He chose the word come. Do you know why he chose the word come? Because Jesus said the word come. Now, other people may remember it differently. He may have used this story on more than one occasion. In the one that Matthew writes down, maybe in that one he did say brought. It's possible. But this, this desire for modern scholars to try to fit everything in perfectly, dovetail everything perfectly together, is, is actually not what God intended. It, it's unbiblical to do it. You do not mess around with Scripture this way so that Matthew and Mark line up. The point of four Gospels is the fact that they don't line up, <laughs> not that they do line up. So the word is come. Now, now let's think about that for a second. Right, right out of the gate, verse 21, this, what he is saying is different than what we have always heard. And he said to them, is a lamp, does a lamp come, does a lamp come to be put under a basket or under a bed and not a stand? Now, I don't know about you. I own a lot of flashlights. I own a lot of camp lamps. None of them come. They are carried, right? Generally, they are, in fact, brought. So in that sense, even there, you understand why people are confused by the language. What lamp ever brings itself? That never happens, right? You never, I'm never sitting there, and the, light, and the power goes out, and the, and the closet door opens, and all my flashlights come marching out like a Disney cartoon, right? Lighting up the room. That never happens. But why does Jesus say this? What is he talking about? He's clearly not talking about lamps. <laughs> He's not talking about lamps. It's just a metaphor. The light does, in fact, come. And the light that comes is not meant to be hidden. And, and if it is hidden for a while, it's not meant to remain hidden. It's not meant to remain hidden. <clears throat> the use of come is intriguing, precisely because lamps do not come but are brought. Mark's term at this point is wholly intelligible, however, if Jesus was, in fact, speaking of himself as the lamp that was, has been kindled and that has come, and this is in keeping with the mission pronouncements that he himself has made otherwise. Right? He has come into the world. He is the light of the world. The lamp that has come. What lamp is that? It's Jesus. Jesus is the lamp that has come. The light that comes is also here because he's using these parables the way that he's using them. This is an extension of the one of the seeds. When he references the seed and he references the light, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about the same thing, right? A seed is scattered. You take a handful of it and you throw it like this. Well, when you light a, light, a lamp, what happens? The light goes out, just like seeds do, right? So imagine somebody throwing seeds like this and it's this cascading flow of seeds. And imagine someone lighting a lamp and the light spreads out all over the place, just like the seeds do. It seems reasonable that Mark understood the simile in this way and is using the parable of the lamp to illuminate the parable of the seeds. 
Mark's placement of this parable after chapter 4, verses 11 through 20, suggests further that he has in view the secret of the kingdom of God, which is present in the person of Jesus, whose mission remains for many a veiled enigma. Remember what was read for us this morning. Well, uh, yeah, you can't go where I'm going. And, and after everything he's been doing, everything he's been saying, their assumption is he's going to go and commit suicide. Of all the stupid things that you could say at that moment, uh, that's something I would say. That's how dumb that is. <laughs> right? And standing there listening to Jesus would be like, what, what are you going to go, knock yourself off? What do you mean you're going, you're, oh, you're going to commit the kind of sin where you're going to go someplace where righteous me, I'm not going to be where you are because you're an idiot. You're clearly an idiot, and you're clearly evil, and you're going to do something very wicked. Where, right? And this is the, the Pharisees are saying, talking to him this way. But in that same passage, what did it say? Given everything that he's saying, a whole bunch of other people believe him. Some people hear, hear him, and fruit grows. Some people hear him, and what they have is taken away. Some people hear him, and they get closer to him. Some people hear him, and they go away. Some people hear him, and they're befuddled. Well, let me go back. Everyone who hears him is moderately befuddled. Some people are befuddled to the point of unbelief. Some people are befuddled to the point of, uh, uh, explain this to me more. So that's what all of this is about. This is what I love about, he is, he is far simpler a communicator than we give him credit for. Because how is this different than, I am the great shepherd, I speak and my sheep know my voice. So he never gets tired of saying the same thing over and over and over again. He's a good teacher, and so he says it slightly differently. I remember I had, um, as a teacher, I, I could imagine if I just went into the classroom every day, and I was like, okay, here's the same lesson. And you just told the same lesson over and over and over and over again. No student would sit through that class. They would skip class. They would be gone. They would, they would call their parents and say, please get me out of the school. The teacher is a moron. Right? And so Jesus is, is the best teacher that ever lived. And so he never tires of saying the same thing, and he has the ability to say it in hundreds, if not thousands of ways. I am God. Come to me, and you will have life. But not everyone gets to come to me. To some people, right? remember he said this, right? Thank God that this truth has been given to little children, because those children get to come to me, and, and, and the, those who, who don't receive it from the Father don't get to come to me. Now, that's the same thing that he's saying here. Those who hear his voice and know his voice come to him. Those who do not know him hear his voice and go away from him. Verse 22 says, with its secrecy language, it's sustaining this contrast, and it implies that there is something hidden now which shall later be unveiled. There is a secret which shall become known. We have to be very careful here because some people talk about this secret as if he never intended for it to come to light. But that's not true. He says very plainly, this is a secret now, and the reason that some people don't understand it is because God is judging them. But this mystery, this light, right, is, does, is not meant to be and to remain hidden. So now, right, the light has come in to the world, and it's veiled in this flesh, and people look at him, and they're like, where, where did you come from? Who is your dad? They don't get it but later they will get it. He's explaining the mystery to the disciples because he wants them to go out and tell everyone. So it, it, it's hidden, but it's not hidden permanently. There's a double meaning to this mystery. Jesus is revealing himself to his inner circle, but even they are only partially comprehending the depth and import of what he's saying. 
What they have received is merely a seed of truth, and in, and in the good soil it will grow, but not immediately into a full-grown plant, full-grown understanding. So even amongst his own circle, okay, let's look at this mystery for a moment. Even in his own group, there is this tension between the fact that the disciples know only in part what the apostles will come to know fully. Think about that for a second. The disciples know in part what the apostles will later come to know fully. Well, the disciples and the apostles are the same group of people. So this, this mystery is not meant to be kept hidden for long. Because the very people who here who are befuddled by what he's saying but are following him anyway are the people who are going to be explaining the mystery to everybody else. John six sixty seven through 69 reads, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Well, that is, I mean, we take that at face value. Peter gets it. He saw him walk on water. He saw him feed 5,000. He's seen everything that he's doing. And he's saying, okay, you know, this is hard what you're saying, but where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We know that you are the Holy One of God. So then why does Peter abandon him later? Does he know or does he not know? He believes, but he needs a great deal of help with his unbelief. Right? This is why, right? again, there we go. There's another phrase from Scripture that we're very used to. The, the, the scriptures are more simplistic, are simpler and easier to understand than we give them credit for. Man makes them complicated. Man makes them complicated. Jesus expands on this idea in John twelve sixteen. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So there they all are, and the light for a time is under the bed. Right? Have you ever taken, this is, uh, I used to get caught all the time. I would stay up at, late at night, and I would get the flashlight, and I would go under the bed, and I would read books. And my parents would come in there, and I was like, how do they always know I'm down here? Right? The room is dark. Right? There's enough light coming for, out from my, my dad. Never explain things. My dad used to love to just be this mystery, this total mystery. It's like he, he fostered this idea that he knew everything that I was doing all the time. And, and I remember even one time at school, I did something I wasn't supposed to, and the first thing I said was, Dad? <laughs> so, so there is, in fact, a light under the bed. And, 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 and it's, there's enough of it coming out where they know that, okay, this is the hut that we belong in. Right? Jesus' house is where we need to go, because there's a great light there. It's kind of it's coming through the window a little bit, but we can see it's there. So this is what it's like. They go up and they know, okay, this is where we're supposed to be. But then you take that light out from under the bed and you go and you put it on the throne of heaven and earth and now everything makes sense. The light that was hidden now gives them the understanding to see everything. So Christ who goes down into the ground like the light under the bed is lifted up high into the highest heavens. And then the light shines in such a way that the disciples who only knew in part come to know as the apostles fully who he is and what he has done. So that is what this is all about. For a time, it comes to the earth and it's mysterious. And then the mystery 
the, the veil is pulled back and, and it, the whole thing shines out brightly and everyone from the oldest man to the youngest child can comprehend who Jesus is and what he has done. Ephesians 1, 17 through 10, or 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So the mystery is, is redemption by his blood. The mystery is the forgiveness of our trespasses. The mystery is the riches of his grace. Now, it's profound, but... Is any of those doctrines that I just mentioned a mystery to you guys? I'm fairly certain my eight-year-old could come up here and explain some of these to us. They're no longer a mystery. The depth of what we know about the will of God, right? Us sitting here, technicians, engineers, doctors, public servants, the depth of the will of God that we know at this point, I think we have a hard time even comprehending because he comes into the world, Jesus does, and, and people are like, what? okay, who, who, who do you think you are? What are you doing? They're totally mystified by what God has done in Jesus Christ because it's completely other than what they had ever thought it was going to be. And these are people, as we've seen over and over again, they have the prophets. They have the Old Testament. They have the sacrificial system. And yet they're mystified by who Jesus is. And we're like, oh, it's a mystery. What are you talking about? According to the riches of his grace? Well, we talk about that all the time. We don't even know what, we don't even understand. We don't even understand the riches that we have. What has been given to us is so profoundly beyond anything anyone in the Old Testament period had even came close to. Right? Abraham, Moses, would write, would, they wrote their books in the Old Testament, and they are like, man, if, I could, if someone could just tell me when these things are going to happen. This is what Peter talks about. If somebody could just explain to me when this is going to be, and if I could just see it myself, and, and what do we do? Well, we don't really like the books of Moses because, well, you know, they're boring. <laughs> but, but now imagine what we could do and sit down reading Leviticus reading Exodus, reading Deuteronomy, and what we can understand about what is actually written there more than the people who were living in it. That alone is, prof- is enough. That's enough. I could stop right there and admonish you all with that and say, go read your Bibles, and on that idea alone, you, all of you, from the oldest of you in this room to the youngest of you who can read, can understand what Moses wrote better than Moses he longed to see Christ's day, and that is why on the, on the mountain, God let Moses see Jesus. He's like, oh my gosh, this is what I was talking about. This is unbelievable. He's a guy from Nazareth. God is a guy from Nazareth. Uh, Moses is like, okay, well, that's, I'm going to go back to heaven now. That is too much. <laughs> Colossians 4.3, at the same time, pray also for us. Paul says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray that God would open a door, that the light that was under the bed can come out from under the bed, not stay in this house, the house of God, but go forth, lift it up like it ought to be, so that the mystery does not remain a mystery to all of those people out there sitting in darkness. 
It is a mystery to those who first hear it. Think about it. The fall, redemptive history itself, the God-man Messiah, sin, Satan, and death, the substitutionary atonement. But the more we come to know Jesus, the less of a mystery it is. Imagine, right, our evangelistic strategy was to go and meet with unbelievers and explain to them the book of Jonah. Okay, well, you know, there was this guy, he was, he was a prophet, he was supposed to obey God, he knew all kinds of secrets that God knew, and, and he runs away, and he goes down into the water, and then he's crying out to God to save him, and this fish swallows him, and the, right, the modern believer's like, okay, okay, uh, that sounds like, that's just crazy myths, why, right, I mean, why don't you get out of, let's get out Homer and start talking about that, if you're going to talk about this crazy stuff. Troy is, is at least a battle, somewhat more interesting than Jonah. And then in the end, imagine you're saying, <clears throat> at the very end of this, you're explaining Jonah, and you're like, okay, and then Jesus is the greater Jonah. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, I, I always mention that story because when I, like, the time where I went from unbelief to belief, it was about that story. I was like, the, the, Christians are simple people to believe these fairy tales about fish swallowing prophets and spitting them up on a beach, and then a bunch of people coming to believe, and then the guy hates the fact that everyone believes what he said. It's like, this is just crazy what you guys are talking here. And then, and then, and then that was it. Jesus says, I'm the greater Jonah. And I, that haunted me, and, right? The hounds of heaven chased me all over Seattle and in the Pacific Northwest with this idea in the back of my head. How is he the greater Jonah? Right? And, and, and so those kinds of, do you remember when it was that mystifying? The faith. It's still that mystifying to everyone who sits in darkness. So you're telling me that all the stuff that I've done, right, which I, I would have a hard time calling sin, but okay, I've made a few mistakes in my life. And you're telling me that all the punishment I have coming for that will go away instantly if I just believe in this guy, Jesus. They're like, okay, nice try. Uh, I'm, I'm late. I have to go and see my therapist. It's absurd, right? I, I said just a moment ago, now, see what I'm doing here? I'm in, I'm in, mystery comes into play here. In one sense, Jesus is speaking in such simple terms, too simple sometimes for us to even understand them. It's not that it's too complicated, it's that it's too simple. And yet, at the same time, man in his arrogance hears it and he thinks that it's just a, a knot of contradictions and absurdities. Now, here's my question. Going back to Ephesians... Redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, the riches of his grace, his wisdom, his insight. Right? We're hearing all those things, and I think most of you are like, yeah, okay, check, 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 check. But, but do you still run up hard and fast against mysteries? Are you ever reading the word of God and you think, that is absurd, what he just said? That is unbelievable. That is a real mystery. Now, why? If not, why not? D -d -d right? And th this is where you start, this is where you get really into, so I'm going to start poking everyone's eye, including my own. You know how many times I skip the genealogies in Genesis? I'm like, okay, somebody we got, somebody, whatever. Good to know. Does anyone know why those are there? Now, it's actually, if you read the whole story of Genesis, Right? There is actually an, a simple explanation. It's not complicated. 
But, but think about it. Why is it that you always run to the parts of the scripture that you know so well, that you've already figured out, that don't seem like mysteries? Because it's comfortable to be comforted and not have to do any work. <laughs> right? Be like, well, uh, I mean, I don't want to have to get a dictionary or a commentary or ask my pastor any questions. I just want to be able to read uh, Ephesians 1 and sort of just be mystified by it. God is so profound. But what are those, what, what is he really saying in Ephesians in one of the longest sentences ever recorded in literature ever? Because we think, oh, look, chapter one, chapter, that's like one sentence that runs on for like several chapters. And he's just laying down the, the glory and the riches of Christ. When's the last time you went and took them one by one and really thought about them? Now, why am I asking these extraordinarily rude questions? Well, because I'm preaching a sermon about the parables of Jesus, and that's what the parables do. They ask rude questions. <laughs> sorry, but not sorry. What is hidden is in this carpenter from Nazareth is the second person of the Trinity. And though it's mysterious and hard to see how it could be, his divinity did not come to remain hidden in the flesh, but to break loose and light up the whole world. Every mystery that he's given us is meant to be solved. Every mystery he's given us is meant right, to be explained. All of them. Now, some of, us, some of them, we can go on and on and on and on, and then luckily when we die, then we get to a point of understanding where some of them we will in fact understand. There, that is true. But I, I'm going to say this, and this is a bold statement, but most of the mysteries, a lot of the mysteries that we have in Scripture, there actually is a good answer for and it has something to do with Jesus. <laughs> so if you want more of him, you, you, you should maybe have more of his mysteries. That's what he's talking about in all of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that again, just that last bit there. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there's all the elements of this. Right? He never gets tired of saying the same things. There's mystery. There's light. There's darkness. There's hearts. There's something that gets planted that grows. Or something that is rejected and doesn't grow. You either look at his face, and the more you look at it, the more light comes into your mind to understand the glories of the gospel. Or... The God of this world, which we discussed when we did angels, why is he called the God of this world? Well, he was the God of this world, Satan, but he's been thrown down, and now the God of gods is now the God of this world again. The God of this world, Satan, loves to veil these things. right? The cluttered heart, the distracted heart, the shallow heart. He loves to clutter up your heart and so that the seeds that get thrown out on Sundays and thrown out in family worship have nowhere to go have nowhere to be implanted. Satan, the evil spirit, is all about veiling this and not allowing you to see it. 
Now, the world out there can't see it. It's just impossible. Because Christ needs to come and remove the veil and, 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 and enter into a relationship with them so that they are at peace with him and at war with sin so that they can enter into this sanctifying process where more and more is revealed. Well, what happens to Christians is, is we assume, because we understood originally, we're always going to understand at the same level. That's what I was talking about last week. My Christian friend who thinks somehow insurance fraud is uh, something that is a good idea. And you're like, no, that's the basics, man. That's lying and stealing. I, I, I do not need to get into a complicated discussion of Romans here to tell you why that is wickedness. But, but, we, but what happens? Because of our hearts, because we're not weeding, because we're, it's shallow, we're not keeping things in order, we're not coming to Christ w- with what's going on in our lives, and so we become mystified, and we get further from him and not closer. What does Jesus say about himself? What does he say about himself? Well, he says many things. I'm sorry, that's a rhetorical question. In John 8, 12, he says this, I am the light of the world. So back in this parable, is he still, right, the light that's come? Is he talking about lamps? He's not talking about lamps, clearly. He's talking about himself. He is the light of the world. Jesus is the seed that is planted in our hearts, and if our hearts are good soil, then he grows up to fruitfulness within us. This is why Paul talks about, right, our hearts which are rooted and grounded in love. That's why right? Jesus is the seed that's spread out. His is the word, he is the word of God that goes out and does not come back empty because he comes back with 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So the soil that welcomes him welcomes fruitfulness, welcomes life, welcomes openness to the will of God. Zacharias, or Zechariah prophesied about Jesus in Luke 1, 78 through 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Everyone understood that the Messiah coming would be this light that dawns, this new day that comes, the day of the Lord. Titus 2, 11 and 12, for the grace of God has dawned, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. John 1, 9 through 11, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Why? Because they have cluttered hearts. Because they have shallow hearts. Because Satan comes and steals away the seed that's there. Because they hear what he says, they hear what Jesus says, lay down your life and follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. He says these things to them. And it's totally contrary to anything they've ever understood as being righteousness. And he's like, no, righteousness is not a list of impersonal rules. It's a person, me. So you're not following Ten Commandments. You're following a person. So when you're, when you're following him, you're not stealing. When you're following him, you're not lying. When you're following him, you're keeping the Sabbath. It's a person, the law is. Because God is love. And what is the law? Love. He comes to make, this under, make us understand this. But no, 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 no. See, because the Pharisees, who are in control of everything, don't want some other king. They don't want some other way. They want to be the ones that are the doorkeepers. 
They get to decide who's in and who's out. They get to decide who's righteous and who's unrighteous. They get all the the fancy clothes. They get to sit in the gold-covered temple. They are the ones who get all the respect in in the open places. And so all of these worldly concerns make them deaf of hearing. Are you also deaf of hearing because of the concerns of the world? Are you reading a passage and you're thinking there's an adjustment that I need to make in my life to follow Christ, but I would have to give up watching football games on Sunday. You'd have to give up your favorite coffee shop. You'd have to give up, right? I mean, think about like the, (laughs) this is one that's big in my family. People become diabetics in my family and they would rather actually eat chicken and gravy from KFC than live longer. And so they're like, wait, I got to lay things down in order to have life, right? I mean, it's like so obvious there. That's like, bam. But how often are you doing that very thing? You're, you're reading the word of God and you're like, man, that's, that, that got me right there. I, I've got to give up dumplings. Or I'm going to die young. I've got to give up Snickers bars. And you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. The Snickers bars are too good. I'm not going to live long anyway. I mean, what's another 10 years? And, and in our own lives, we're like, what do you mean I've got to give up that? I'm not giving up that. No, that's fine. Has anyone noticed? I still get to take communion on Sundays. So I can keep that and still have the table of the Lord, we think. I can keep that, and I can still be a respectable person in the eyes of my spouse. I'm not giving that up. That's crazy. <clears throat> this, is, this is what goes on, not just in the Pharisees, but it's what goes on in the people of God. The Pharisees were not unbelievers way out here outside of the covenant of God. Okay, let, me, let me clarify that. They are unbelievers, but they're still covenant members. Right? They are the people of God. And the people of God always have within themselves Pharisees and hypocrites. The problem with a hypocrite is they usually don't know they're a hypocrite. Right? I don't know how many times. This is what now is like a way of life to me. It's like I don't want the wrong person to be convicted by the thing that I say. Right? Because the soft saying for, for the soft heart and the hard saying for the hard heart. And I don't know how many times some person comes and they have a very tender conscience and they heard something that I said and they're like, man, I have no fruit in my life. And you're like, okay, well, okay, I like the humility. We'll start there. But, uh, yeah, I think you're okay. I think you're going in the right direction. So just keep on keeping on. So don't stop and turn around and repent of this major thing. Just keep going in the direction you're going. Right? The people of God are a complicated, messy bunch. And, and the only thing that gives us light, the only thing that lets us see clearly is Jesus. Is Jesus. Now, what is the difference between the disciples and the apostles? What's the difference, right? Peter's a disciple, Peter's an apostle. What's the difference between this group that kind of gets it and this group that gets it? This group who is like, look, look what they're doing to Jesus, quick, run away. And this group over here, uh, one of them says, wait, you're going to crucify me. Well, my Lord was crucified, so you can't crucify me upright. You've got to flip me over. You guys know which apostle that was? Who what? Peter. Look at what they're doing to him. I'm going to run away. I have nothing to do with that guy. How does he go from that to you can't even crucify me upright because that's what they did to Jesus. I'm not worthy enough. Me, I'd be like, just shoot me in the head right now and get it over with. Right? But that's never what they do when they're torturing Christians. He doesn't even want to be crucified upright. Think about that. Think about that. What is the difference? 
What is the, the thing behind all of these parables, all of the stuff? Now think of the context here. What was Jesus doing in the Gospel of Mark? Right? He talked about his family, but what happened just before that? Before he, we get all this teaching? What was that at issue between him and the Pharisees? What was the source of his power? They said it was an evil spirit. He says, why are you blaspheming the Holy Spirit? They're like, what are you talking about? We're not talking about the Holy Spirit. He goes, you are talking about the Holy Spirit. You're talking about where the source of my power comes from. Then he makes a statement about who his family is, and then all of a sudden we're in these parables about people who get it and people who don't get it. What, make, what is the difference between the disciples and the apostles? I think everyone is beginning to understand what direction I'm going in here. Pentecost is the difference. Pentecost is the difference. This is what J.I. Packer says about the Holy Spirit. It's a little long, but it, this is so good. And just think about these parables about seeds and light and good soil and bad soil. Think about, listen to how he packs all of that in here, which it's just J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer's like, you want me to say something about the Bible? I'm going to say something about the Bible. I'm going to say something about everything in the Bible when I'm saying anything about anything in the Bible. Only the Holy Spirit, searcher of the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10, can bring about this realization in our sin-darkened minds and hearts. Those who, along with sound verbal instruction, have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit in imparting this knowledge is called illumination or enlightening. It is not given of a new revelation, but a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical text as heard and read and as explained by teachers and writers. Sin in our mental and moral system clouds our minds and wills so that we miss and resist the force of Scripture. God seems to us remote, to the point of unreality. And in the face of God's truth, we are dull and apathetic. The Spirit, however, opens and unveils our minds and attunes our hearts so that we understand. As by inspiration, he provided scripture truth for us, so now by illumination, he interprets it to us. Illumination is thus the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts so that we grasp as reality for ourselves what the sacred text sets forth. Listen to the last portion here. Sin clouds, dulls, and makes apathetic. The Spirit opens, unveils, attunes our hearts. The Spirit is the tiller of the soil. The Spirit is the water. The Spirit is the fertilizer that makes the seed grow. The Spirit softens hard hearts, clears over cluttered hearts, widens shallow hearts to make them good soil for the word of God. Listen, Jesus says. Listen. And the fruit that comes back 30, 60, and 100-fold is the fruit of the Spirit. Why is it that Jesus is the root, but the fruit is by the Holy Spirit? Remember what I said. There's two witnesses. What was read for us today? There's two witnesses. Jesus is declaring it, and the Holy Spirit is allowing us to understand it. Jesus says, I am the greater Jonah, and if you don't have the Spirit, you're going to say, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. He says, I'm the greater Jonah. You have the Spirit of God, and you'll be like, yeah, he is the greater Jonah. Dude! That's crazy! Wait, wait, Jonah was sleeping in a boat, and Jesus was sleeping in a boat. Everyone's terrified by a storm, and they wake Jonah up, who's a prophet of God, and, and everyone's terrified in the boat with Jesus, and they wake him up because they're terrified, and this prophet can't do anything for them, and this prophet can. He is greater. That's just the start, by the way. He is the greater Jonah, and it's the Spirit of God who, who, who 
why is it the seed goes out and some soil's good and some soil's bad? Well, John the Baptist went around and what was he saying? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes along very shortly after and says, the kingdom of God is here. I'm, I'm here. So some people were prepping the soil and some people were not prepping the soil. The people who heard John the Baptist and wanted him dead and wanted him out on the fringes of society and didn't listen to him are the very people who come and the soil is unprepared. So Jesus says something and they're like, you have an evil spirit. That is nonsense what you are talking there, brother. Where those who heard John said, man, this guy's not in the temple, he's out in the woods. He's telling us to repent, right? He's not telling us to kill lambs. He's telling us to come out here and to rend our hearts before God because he's clearly given up on this system. There's a new system in town. And shortly after all this, here comes Jesus. And so a bunch of people now believe because the soil is ready. Now, if you look in Mark chapter 4, you don't see Jesus talk about that. But if you go back and listen to the sermon I, I had about his secret companion, Those who are keeping score in chapter 4, hopefully we're keeping score back in chapter 1, because when he gets baptized, what descends upon him? Right? The Holy Spirit does. And what does it do? It drives him around. The Pharisees say, look, he has an unclean spirit. But everybody else who sees what he's doing is like, no, this, are you an unclean spirit? What are you talking about? How does an unclean spirit make lepers not lepers anymore? How does an unclean spirit... Fix the guy's withered hand. And don't you remember the withered hand from 1 Kings? I know what's going on here. I see. I hear what's happening, and I understand to a certain extent. And so I don't. this guy is, is totally unlike anything we've ever seen, more authority than we've ever heard, and so I'm going to follow him and see what happens. And so people are like, okay, I get it, but I don't, they don't really get it because they don't have the Spirit descended upon them in power like they do at Pentecost. But the spirit is there, and he's moving. He's like, okay, I'm going to till a little soil here, a little soil there, a little, mm, get everybody ready. And it's the same, right? Revivals break out, and everybody suddenly loves Jesus a hundred times more than they did. People come pouring into churches, and it's because of the same thing. The spirit is zipping around, tilling soil. So the word that people have been hearing for generations and generations suddenly springs into life. The word hasn't changed. The word hasn't changed. The seeds are the seeds. What's changed is the soil. What's changed is the soil. Now, aren't you guys glad I broke this one sermon into multiple sermons? (laughs) I am. Now, I want to explain something here that I'm telling you. I literally, on Thursday, when I figured this out, I almost started calling everyone. (laughs) Because I can't believe that's what it means. This is what Jesus says. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Now, that that is an echo from before, remember? Listen, he says. And obedience is hyper-listening in Greek. Remember that. Okay, that's an echo from before. But this is what he says. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Okay, well, I mean, I kind of think of measure as a ruler, right? You measure the length of something. But what does this mean? Imagine if you were in those days going down to the market and you wanted to buy a loaf of bread. I want a pound of bread. Like, okay, well, that'll be three bucks. Okay, so they measure out a pound of bread. Now, what if there was a guy running a shop who didn't know anything about business, like I would, and he says, hey, come with whatever measure you want. I'm not going to tell you how much. I'm not going to say a pound. I'm not going to say whatever. You come and we'll measure it out as much as you want. 
It's the same price, three bucks. Well, if you're smart, you'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to go get a five-gallon bucket. I'm going to go get a dump truck. I'm going to get a trailer. We'll come down here for three bucks. I will feed everybody in my whole neighborhood. So Jesus is the one, the shopkeeper, right? He's flitting around here with these parables. It's awesome. He's now the shopkeeper, and he's got life on the shelves. So how much do you want? How much do you want? Whatever you come, whatever measure you come to me with is the measure I will fill. Now, we hear that analogy, and we're like, well, why would anybody come any, with anything less than a cargo ship? Right? Two cargo ships. But this is what he's saying to us. The measure that you measure with is what I will fill. You come to me with whatever container you want. You come to me with whatever question you want. And I will fill it. Those who hear him and are befuddled by what he says and don't want any part of it go away. Those follow him with questions. And what do they get? They get more answers than they, right? He doesn't just explain the parable of the seeds. He goes on to tell them about a mystery. He goes on to tell them about the parable of the lights. He goes on to tell them about other parables about seeds. He doesn't just explain what he's already giving them. He gives them more. What is the measure with which you are going to Christ and saying, fill this? Yourself? Your wife? Your husband? Your children? Your neighbors? Your church? How often is our prayer like, yeah, you know, give me a pretty decent afternoon, Jesus. Please, please. I got a lot to do. Give me just enough life for this afternoon, for me. Amen. Right? He's like, that is pathetic. I'll fill that measure, fine. Now, what if we were constantly, because he is the king, because he is the one, the light lifted up that makes sense to everything, if we brought all of our darkness to him and said, Shine your light on all of this. Here's the measure. The measure is the whole world. Fill it. Whatever measure we use is the measure he will fill. So why are we coming to him with handkerchiefs, if that? Why are we coming to him with these used tiny little wine cups that we have? Please, God, all I need is this much. We open the Bible and we're like, man, this is, uh, I'm mystified by almost everything here. I'm not going to ask too much because this is, I got a lot of other things I got to do. And so we come with a tiny little measure and he fills the tiny little measure, like a little bird eating. Just a little bit. What if you came to him with the whole world? What if you came to him with your whole neighborhood, your whole office, your whole house, the whole church? What would he do? What would he do? An example of this, just to make it very clear, is Mary and Zachariah, Zachariah, who I already mentioned. Gabriel comes to Zachariah, and Zachariah says, God can't do that. So what he has is, is the speech to ask that stupid question, which is the question I would ask. And so God takes away his speech. Gabriel comes to Mary and says, I'm, you're, you're a virgin. You, you've never lain with a man, and I'm going to give you a child, the son of God. And she says, how is he going to do that? How are you going to do that? Well, the Holy Spirit is going to come and overpower you. So not only does she have the revelation she already got, she asks a question and she gets more. Zechariah is given revelation. 
Okay, and he can't, right, he asks a bad question in unbelief, and then he can't, he doesn't even have the power to ask questions anymore. That is what we're talking about here. This is the difference be- between these hearers and these hearers. This soil and this soil. The person who takes the light and it's like, you know, I, this isn't a light for the world. I, I, this is just, right, Christ is hidden. He's hidden here in my heart. He's hidden here in my devotions. He's hidden here in my Christian ghetto of Protestant respectability. We keep him contained instead of letting him burst forth. We limit him. He's essentially telling us, think about this. You come to me with the measure and I will fill it. You are bounding me or unbounding me. Now, there's some clarifications there. I'm not going to make them at this point, though. I think you all trust me well enough to know there are some a few things you could say here or there on the edges of that, but I'm just going to say this. He is telling you that his power goes forth and it's limited or set loose because of you. Right? This is why he goes to some towns and he says, there's not enough faith here to do anything. I can't get anything done. They're like, what? You're Jesus. You can do whatever you want. He's like, yeah, there's not enough faith. Because he can, but he doesn't. He responds to the measure that's brought to him. He's, he responds as the light to where you put him. If you put him under the bed, that's all the light you're going to get. You put him on a pedestal, that's how much light you're going to get. You come to him with a teaspoon, he's going to fill it. You come to him with the world, he'll fill it. That is what these parables are about. It's all about that soil. Is, is it going to grow up to, to 30, 60, and 100 fold? Are we just going to come to Christ with a huge measure? Are we going to come to him with our questions? Are we going to come to him with our darkness and let his light cast it out? Or, or, or are we going to think small, act small, be small? He's telling us it's up to us. We're, he says, my family is the family that hears the will of God and does it. That's who you are. All of you are here because you're obeying his word. You've all come because you want to do the will of God. So now that you're here, what's the measure you want him to measure it out with? What's the darkness that needs the light? Father God, we thank you for your word and the mystery of your son that you never get tired of uh, unveiling uh, the light that shines and it grows and grows greater and greater. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just um, have this sacred light and keep it to ourselves, keep it in a jar, keep it under the bed, keep it in our own homes, keep it in our own hearts, but Lord God, that we would let it burst forth. Your word is simpler than we give it credit for. We pray, Lord God, that you would that you would give us the faith, that you would give us the energy, that you would give us the passion to come to it and to begin to ask the questions that would give us more understanding. Not just the, the, the well-worn parts that we're used to, but all of it. We pray, Lord God, that we would not keep things in the dark, but that we would bring them to the light so that Christ might shine upon them and that he would heal us and that he would give us life. I pray, Lord God, for everyone in this room that they would come with the biggest measure that they could possibly fathom. And I know, Lord God, that you will fill it because you are faithful. Amen.